0: Well, once again, good morning. My name is Hannah. I'm glad you're here. This morning, we heard another story about the resurrected Jesus appearing to his followers because we're in Eastertide. This story is similar to the one that we heard last week with doubting disciples and an invitation to touch the scars of the crucified one. These stories belong to Eastertide because they tell us how the early church came to believe in the resurrection of Christ. After being raised from the dead, Jesus appeared to his disciples a number of times to help them believe and to truly understand what had just happened. His visitations offered proof that he really had died and that he now really was alive. Not just spiritually alive or metaphorically alive, but physically. And it's because of these eyewitness accounts right here in the Gospels that the Christian church has always proclaimed the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. But this particular little story in Luke takes things one step further. In addition to showing us that Jesus has been raised, it also tells us something about what the resurrection means. What does it mean that Jesus rose again? I don't know about you, but... When I was a child growing up in church, I sometimes struggled to understand the relevance of Jesus' resurrection. Christ has risen. Cool. Good for him. It was a story that I knew well, and I knew it was supposed to make me happy, but I didn't really understand its significance, its implications. There's a now viral video on YouTube by a California resident who stumbles upon a rainbow outside his home in the Yosemite Valley. I hear some murmurs, So maybe some of you have seen this. It's a beautiful rainbow, so he starts filming, and as he's filming the rainbow, you can hear him marveling about its beauty and its mystery. And then all of a sudden, he realizes it's a double rainbow, and he is overcome with euphoria. This guy is really in touch with beauty, I guess. And through sobbing tears, he finally proclaims, A double rainbow. It's too much. What does it mean? Tell me, what does it mean? It's a funny video, but it's also a really good question. What does it mean? And I think it's an important question that we must ask about Easter as well. Jesus has been raised, it's so beautiful. What does it mean? That's where we're headed this morning. Our story picks up in the middle of a conversation amongst Jesus' disciples. Verse 33, right before our story picks up, tells us that it's the 11, Jesus' original apostles. They're gathered together with a large group of other disciples, including two who had just seen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. So by this point, Jesus has already appeared to the women at the tomb, to Simon Peter, and to these two other disciples, all of whom are now together sharing their stories. And verse 34 tells us that as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. It's important to pause and reflect on the fact that even after multiple encounters with the risen Christ, by members of this group, the disciples still assume that Jesus must be a ghost. They still disbelieve the bodily resurrection such that Jesus says, It's really me. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. It's popular in some theological circles today to assume that early Christians believed in the bodily resurrection because they were primitive unenlightened people who didn't yet understand the science of death. This line of reasoning suggests that we know better now, and we realize the resurrection must have been merely a spiritual reality, a metaphor, a sentiment. This is more plausible to our sensibilities. But the persistent disbelief of the first disciples indicates that bodily resurrection was just as unbelievable then as it is now. Jesus invites them to touch his hands and his feet, to prove to them that he is no apparition or celestial visitor. He eats fish, he has scars. Thus, Christianity was born of the belief that a dead man came back to life. And if that's not spectacular enough, it gets better. Christians believe that Jesus didn't just come back to life for a little while, like someone who's brought back by a defibrillator for a few more healthy years before an inevitable death. The Book of Romans says it like this, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The Christian hope is that Jesus Christ is still alive and still in a body, right now. Do you ever think about that? We tend to spiritualize Jesus' existence. We say things like, Jesus lives in my heart, which of course is true in the sense that Jesus sends his spirit to dwell among us and within us. But Jesus didn't evaporate when he ascended to heaven. He still exists materially as a human being with a living body. It sounds crazy, and it is, But we have to grapple with that fact in order to understand its true implications. The resurrection life of Jesus makes absolutely no sense according to the world as we know it. We have no categories for a body that isn't subject to decay, that isn't subject to death, until now. With Jesus, we see the start of something totally new. We see the start of new creation. Here's how New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it. The resurrection of Jesus offers itself to the student of history or science no less than the Christian or theologian, not as an odd event within the world as it is, but as the utterly characteristic, prototypical, and foundational event within the world as it has begun to be. It's not an absurd event within the old world, but the symbol and starting point of the new world The claim advanced in Christianity is of that magnitude. Jesus of Nazareth ushers in not simply a new religious possibility, not simply a new ethic or a new way of salvation, but a new creation. This is the meaning of Easter. God, through Christ, is making the whole world new. To say it another way, Easter proves that God redeems not only hearts and minds, but also time and space and matter. The very fabric of creation is healed through Jesus' finished work on the cross. And he himself is the first fruit of that. See his hands and his feet. See that his victory over death is complete. This has implications both for our personal understanding of salvation and for our orientation to Christian mission. So let's look at salvation first. The resurrection of Jesus The new creation revealed in and through his body means that Jesus has come to save a lot more than your soul. He has also come to save your kidneys and your sinuses and your toes. We live in a world that has essentially bifurcated body and soul. We've been trained to dissociate from and even to devalue our physical selves. We say things like, well the real me is here inside and this is just my body. So it doesn't really matter what I do with my body or what happens to my body. It's on this basis that we've created a sexual ethic of casualness and even callousness. It's on this basis that victims of sexual abuse are told to forgive and forget. No big deal. Our subtle devaluation of the body even confuses our grief when loved ones die. We try to lessen the sting of death by turning it into some kind of consolation prize. A graduation day, we sometimes call it. Here's an example. It's an internationally renowned bereavement poem that has been one of the most popular choices for funerals of the last century, spanning the religious and cultural spectrum. Meaning, this has been read at many, many Christian funerals in the last hundred years. It goes like this. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift, uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. Maybe this poem has meant something to you. Maybe it has been a comfort to you. There is comfort in the fact that those who die in Christ are with him now, alive in some way, even as they await resurrection. But brothers and sisters, may I also encourage you by saying, it is right to stand at the grave and weep. It is thoroughly Christian to grieve the tragedy of death, to call it what it is, our enemy. As Seth said a few weeks ago on Easter, we don't just have bodies, we are bodies. What happens to our bodies also happens to our souls. And Jesus has come to redeem all of it, to put us back together again, to heal what has been broken, to restore what has been taken, body and soul. Jesus is our living proof of this. The scars on his hands and feet are there to remind us that what happens to our bodies does matter, and that through him, through his body, ours can be made whole again. This is new creation. It starts with Jesus, and he has promised to make all things new. That's our hope. That's the long game, the end of the story for which we wait. But the resurrection of Jesus in history also has implications for how we are called to live in the meantime. So we'll turn to that now. And to do that, we have to locate Jesus' resurrection in its Jewish context. And I'll start by saying that this very physical, very global scope of redemption was already embedded in Jewish hope. It wasn't a unanimously held belief, but most Jews of Jesus' day believed in a general resurrection that would come at the end of the age, when they expected God would come to judge the world and redeem Israel. It's why Mary weeps at the tomb of her brother Lazarus and says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. They believed that their bodies would be redeemed. What they didn't anticipate, however, is that this resurrection would happen to one person ahead of everyone else. Even though Jesus told them repeatedly what to expect, that he would suffer and be killed and after three days rise again, they simply could not make sense of what he was saying. They had no referent for it. And this is why the disciples essentially lost all hope when Jesus died. Earlier in our chapter here, they say as much. On the road to Emmaus, they explain to their mysterious companion who of course happens to be Jesus and they don't know that yet. They tell him why they're sad. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these last few days regarding Jesus of Nazareth who was killed? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he would be the one. To which Jesus responds, "O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And again, in our passage, starting in verse 44, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. In these Easter appearances, Jesus is helping his disciples to understand that he is the one to redeem Israel. That his death was part of the plan all along. And that his resurrection means the redemption they'd been waiting for is breaking in now, not later. The kingdom has come, new creation has begun. The world is being remade, beginning with Jesus. When we frame the resurrection in these terms, we can see how it then becomes the basis for Christian mission. In the same breath that Jesus explains the meaning of his passion, he calls his disciples to action. Look again at verse 46. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. With Jesus, God's glorious future has arrived in the present, and this good news belongs to the whole world. Forgiveness can be had. Change is possible. Death has been defeated. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the meaning of Easter. I'll quote NT Wright again since the resurrection is kind of his bread and butter. He says, Insofar as the event has been interpreted in its New Testament context, Easter has a very this worldly, present age meaning. Jesus is raised, so he is the Messiah, and therefore he is the world's true Lord. Jesus is raised, so God's new creation has begun, and we, his followers, have a job to do. Jesus is raised, so we must act as his heralds, announcing his lordship to the entire world, making his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Of course, this job of the disciples has to do with our proclamation, right? Making disciples and baptizing them, as Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. But if new creation is about the redemption and the renewal of all things, then we can see how Christian mission takes many forms. It looks like bringing everything we do in subjection to the Messiah, doing business and art and medicine in the name of our Lord and for his glory. It looks like living in and for society in a way that brings God's future to bear on the present. It's being enchanted by visions like we heard from Micah this morning, the very telos, the destination of Easter. The prophet writes in Micah 4, it shall come to pass in the latter days that many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. He shall judge between many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is new creation, the renewal of all things, bodies and societies, and weapons of war. It may sound like a naive, unrealistic ideal when you turn on the daily news. But Easter reminds us that this new world has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus. He is the down payment, our proof that the tide has already turned and that real change is possible. So we can and should continue to dream this big, beautiful dream for ourselves and our families, for our neighborhoods, for our world, because it is a dream that is coming true. I'd like to close with some encouragement from a friend of mine named Esau McCauley. He's a fellow priest in the ACNA, uh, our denomination, uh, but he actually grew up in the black church. And a large part of his ministry and even his life speaks to the impact of racism in America. And he wrote an essay a few years ago about how more than anything else, it's the resurrection of Jesus that gives him hope for racial equity in this country. He writes, What evidence do we have that today's racial divisions can be defeated and that our societal sickness is not unto death? Our answer is the same, the empty tomb and the risen Christ. Instead of looking for more signs, we need to be re-enchanted by the resurrection. Instead of looking at the problems facing the church and the world through the lens of our Twitter feeds, we need to remember that Christ is risen and rules over all. His power applies to all of our enigmas. Racism and systemic oppression are not more difficult to overcome than death. And our hope for a transformed society comes directly from the risen Lord. Let me be clear, he goes on. This doesn't mean that God is our genie and that we can rush into any arena assuming he will rescue us from any folly or grant every request. It doesn't mean that Christians can never feel discouragement. Here's what it means. Our limited imaginations do not form the boundaries of what God can do. Humans have limited power. We can maim and kill or be killed. We can make promises of social unity that we often lack the power to actualize. But a God who has defeated death and called to himself of people who understand the full scope of his victory is unstoppable. The defeat of death is God's great triumph. It reshapes the Christian imagination, forever obliterating the limits we place upon our creator. As the protests press on then, I pray today and every day that we remember the resurrection when the entire cosmos became something different. We have yet to fully realize the scope of that change. Easter was the day when the entire cosmos became something different. Let us go forward then in that hope, amen?